Welcome to the Human Capital Lab, a podcast for learning and development leaders who understand education is the link between employee fulfillment and corporate productivity. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Epler. Let's get started. The average person born in 1960 could expect to live to 52.5 years of age. Today, the average is 72. Longer lives mean more opportunities for learning, especially in industrialized nations. Plus, researchers have identified that learning is positive for health and that longevity and education are related. Our guest today is the perfect person to help us unravel this topic that's relevant to us all today and as we age. When you think about learning and development leaders' aspirations to build cultures of learning, Having a firm understanding about learning, lifelong learning, and how it can be harnessed to move our business forward in the future, there could be no better investment than continuing to listen to this episode. Terry Hart is a learning expert and work futurist who has been a leader in learning and development at Fortune 500 and Fortune Global 500 companies in financial services, manufacturing, healthcare, and retail industries. She has led leadership roles at companies like GE, McKinsey, Discover Financial Services, and Zurich North America, where she is currently the head of talent development. Terry's latest publication, Hardwired to Learn, Leveraging the Self-Sustaining Power of Lifelong Learning, is a meaningful contribution to an L&D leader's library as it covers strategies to overcome the primary barriers of learning, resources, and ideas for integrating learning in one's daily life and approaches for lifelong learning practices. I was very excited when our mutual friend Dirk Tussing shared with me your latest work. I knew you had to join me here. When I saw your introduction for Hardwired to Learning, used one of my favorite quotes, The beautiful thing about learning is nobody can take it away from you by B.B. King. I knew I couldn't and wouldn't take no for an answer with you joining this podcast. I'm so honored you are here with me today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to get started. So tell me, what was your inspiration for writing this excellent book? And what were you surprised by when you wrote it? This is actually my favorite question because I did have a few surprises while I was writing the book, but one stands out above all of them. Just starting by stating what we already know, most leaders and and learning leaders, we all agree that we need to invest in developing people. And we know that there is a skills crisis going on and that we can't really rely on hiring as the only way to sort of bring skills to the table to perform our most important work. And so how do we really address the challenge of investment dollars and investment time and developing people when we have work to do? And so, you know, at the same time, we we actually are learning a lot about how the brain works. And there's some really far-reaching implications, I think, of the development in neuroscience that I think are starting to help shed light on this really more limitless potential to our learning. So the aha moment that I really had, though, which really shifted my perspective and I think really shifted my inspiration midway through the book was that we have really yet to tap the evolving science for the true potential of learning. So 
I had written chapter three and I looked back and I said, wait a minute, we've learned more about the brain in the last 20 years than in the last 200. And we've hardly done anything differently from a learning perspective. And so I started to think about that and think as learning professionals, we really have to do more to start translating the neuroscience into practical application to help people learn. Not only is it opening up capabilities for individual learning, but it's opened up new ways of thinking about learning that's going to help address these challenges we face in the corporate world. You know, I found myself really processing your insights about artificial intelligence, AI, and the importance of balancing AI with human intelligence, as you call it, HI. For our listeners who may not have read your book yet, share with them the lessons learned when these are not balanced. Yeah, it's interesting when you think about the, the balance and the trade-offs of sort of investing in what I think is AI and technology or HI or human intelligence. And I coined that term human intelligence to highlight the fact that we need to actually start thinking about it as something that we're really developing in concert with how we're thinking about technology and AI. These new tools have been really encroaching on the work of humans. And while it's been helpful, it hasn't always been done in a balanced way. And in fact, we know of situations where AI can amplify systemic problems that are already happening in areas like decision-making. For example, a few years ago, we found out that the healthcare algorithms that were used to make decisions at U.S. hospitals were found to be racially biased. And what they were doing is they were looking at total healthcare spend as an indicator of patient health risk. Um, and so because Blacks had had historically reduced access to healthcare, the AI was incorrectly identifying these Black patients as lower risk. Um, even though they may have been sick or even more sick than similarly afflicted white patients. And, and that was in a, a nature study in, in October of 2019. I found lots of other examples. I think that one was the one that was best documented. But as we look ahead too at, at advances in technology, advances in the internet of things and the connectivity around our homes, gene technology and what's happening with advancements in stem cell technology, we know that decisions are going to become increasingly complicated. And we're not really going to be able to rely on computers to kind of figure out how to make the decisions around these things. I think that that's really important. You know, when you were talking, it, it reminded me of a McKinsey study. They asked HR directors how they were going to accommodate changes in technology in the workforce. And we know some technology has the potential to replace staff. But what has me thinking was, I believe more than 50% in that study said that they would just reduce the workforce. And those who would get laid off were those with the least amount of digital or technical skills. And I'm wondering if there's an ethical dilemma there that needs to be considered if we don't focus on just one, right? We, we need that balance without both are we leaving a population behind? And I'm, I'm wondering if this is something that we as L&D leaders think about as we're holistically putting together our, our portfolio. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought. I think it, it actually has something to do with this idea of work sustainability. And I think of work sustainability as really taking the long view on people, on human capital. If we take the long view, we understand that we're shifting jobs and changing jobs enough 
that we will potentially displace workers. And there are companies who have been doing some things to address that. I know that Amazon has been in the news for those things as they look at continuing to automate their warehouses. They're also looking at how do we support workers who want to be able to transition to Amazon cloud jobs or, or other jobs. And they're making a pretty significant investment in, in upskilling and reskilling these individuals. But at the end of the day, the in- employees need to be bought into that too. And I think particularly somebody mid-career who may have a lot of accomplishments behind them, the idea of continuing to evolve and continuing to change can be a little daunting. Um, and so there are some tips in my book to help provide more intrinsic motivation so that people feel like they can overcome some of the barriers that might get in the way of them wanting to keep learning. That makes me think about your chapter of Fluid Workforce. Um, You highlighted the transformations and reincarnations of business over time. And your question about what would companies do differently if they looked at talent as the infinite game really highlights the value L&D brings or could have brought to the longevity of businesses. Would you share some of your takeaways from your corporate review that included AT&T, McDonald's, what L&D leaders should take note of? Yeah, sure. So, well, first of all, I just, I want to give credit to where credit is due. Economist James Carse actually first developed this concept of infinite game. And Simon Sinek actually popularized this concept. And I think he brought this whole idea to the contemporary corporate realm with his book, Essentially, an infinite game is a game that has no end, and there are no winners and and losers. And so if we look at the corporate world, it is an infinite game. And so if you play things as it's not an infinite game, then maybe you're not playing the right game. And I, I think the conclusion that I drew from that is really talent is an infinite game. And so we think of talent and we think of a war for talent, but Really, it's an ongoing challenge where there are ongoing ebbs and flows of being ahead and being behind. And so that means taking a long-term view on how to really invest in in human capital for long-term sustainability. And I think I talk a little bit about AT&T. I think AT&T is a really good case because there was a technological shift. We shifted from landlines to mobile phones. That meant a huge shift in how the workforce was going to work. And so they invested significantly in upskilling and reskilling the workforce. And there's actually a Harvard Business Review case on this that is quite interesting. But they they were taking the long view. And and in fact, they had to take the long view (laughs) because it really wasn't, it was sort of like this example of where if, you know, it's do or die. And so I think It's unfortunate that it had to be a do or die situation. I think executives increasingly are thinking of it. Okay, it's maybe, maybe it's not do or die, but it's do or die slowly. (laughs) I think more leaders are catching on to this. You know, Mario Greco, who's the CEO of Zurich, he wants to make Zurich the most sustainable company in the world. And so we're looking at how do we make sure that we have a philosophy around people that we see them as not expendable and replaceable, but rather people that we want to invest in. And so we've been doing some thinking about that from an L&D perspective of 
How do we drive a philosophy around continuous learning? How do we create opportunities for people to move from one career to another? And there's some work that we're doing on a broader scale that's really intended to help us do this. Oh, that's amazing. You know, when you think about learners, one of the pieces in your book that I thought rung true in my experiences was when you started talking about the six barriers to learning. Sometimes we have these goals of, of helping our folks learn specific items to be able to do their job better. But many times we don't think about the barriers that may prevent it from happening. When we look at how these barriers show up in an organization, I think they really illuminate what does it mean to be a learning organization? Because we are discovering things that make an organization open to learning embracing diverse perspectives and viewpoints, being willing to make mistakes, having a safe place to make mistakes and creating psychological safety, embracing a fail-fast mentality and being vulnerable. All of these things are actually also necessary to creating a culture where people want to stay and feel a sense of belonging. And so interestingly, I think there's a lot of overlap and demand for thinking through, how do we really create organizations that learn? And I think that means not just role modeling learning of, look, I'm taking a class or look, I'm reading a book, but role modeling learning from mistakes that we make and and failures that we experience, Um, welcoming constructive conflict. I think as a leader, I, you know, one of the most powerful things I think I can do is actually to admit openly to my team when I make a mistake. And so I think like creating an environment where you really are driving learning as a way of increasing understanding and growing and growing your team and growing the business is going to be also one where people want to work. I think the, one of the most important things we can do from a talent perspective is to just see us all as changing and growing. Your chapter on learning hacks. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. For those who haven't had the opportunity to read this book yet, learning hacks in this book are learning hard, learning what you cannot learn, overthinking, being human. Terry, share with our listeners what you hope readers take away from this chapter. The learning hacks. (laughs) You know, I think it's interesting. As a learning professional, I am often thinking about what it means to learn. We're trying to make learning comfortable and easy and fun. In the chapter, I talk about learning hard and learning things you think you can't learn because our brains tend to develop patterns of how we learn. Our brains tend to develop patterns of what we think. And so By learning something difficult and by learning something we think we don't know or we don't think we're not good at, we're actually disrupting these patterns in our brain. And so a lot of the learning hacks are really about shaping and reshaping our brains to do more and other and different things. So the key takeaway that I was really trying to impart with that chapter was that eh, it's going to be uncomfortable. And if it's not uncomfortable, it's, it's maybe not having the impact that it could have. And so if we embrace this thinking and start to become comfortable in that discomfort, um, which is, you know, I actually like to live there. (laughs) It's hard. I just feel like maybe I'm addicted to it a little bit. Um, And I laugh about being addicted to it, but I think the brain science actually does confirm that you could, you have such aha moments and that actually does create sort of this dopamine rush. (laughs) when you discover something new and make these new connections. And so 
I think it is really possible to become addicted to learning. <laughs> um, and so that might be my next book, Addicted to Learning. Who knows? Cool. <laughs> you heard it first here. <laughs> so you're always working on so many exciting projects and different things. I'm curious what you're currently working on at your place of work and if there is a particular project that you think really benefited from your work on this book. I think I alluded to some of this a little bit before, but I think the most significant impact that it's had really on me and how, how I communicate with other L&D professionals is how we think about our work. We often have the mindset, I think, that if you build it, they will come. And we build programs and we curate content to address these perceived skills benefits. We immediately think that if we're going to change the behaviors of our leaders, that we have to have a workshop. You know, so, you know, I think that thinking is starting to be outdated a little bit. And so what we've been doing is looking at how we can embed learning and a mindset of learning and how we work. We've put in place a listening strategy. So we're attuned to evolving learning needs and so that we're really curating and focusing on the most important things. And we need to curate and, and be very selective instead of offering many, many choices. That is amazing. So what's next for you? Thank you for asking that. You know, I really felt like, oh, writing the book was going to be the end. And as I was writing the book, I realized, no, this isn't the end. This is just the beginning. Like finishing the book is the starting point because I think it, it helped me tap into what energized me about my work. And I know I, I really want to continue to work on researching the neuroscience and discovering more ways to translate that into practical learning and learning about how we can be better. Wow, thank you for sharing that. It's always interesting to learn about how those in charge of learning learn more. So other than where they can buy your book, what are two resources that you would recommend? Well, thank you. The, the book is on Amazon, of course, and thank you for that suggestion. From a practical perspective, there are a couple of go-tos for me. One of them, I think most learning professionals know about Coursera, and I think whether it's Coursera or another tool or a certificate you want to get, I think that actually we do light learning a lot, but a tool like Coursera actually allows more deep learning into a topic. And it kind of hails back to what I was talking about earlier, where if you're not learning hard, you're not, you're not really creating um, new capabilities for yourself. And so Accessing a resource like Coursera that is going to help you learn hard and really double down on something that's difficult for you. But outside of that, I would just say, you know, secondly, there's a growing body of neuroscience research on purpose. And purpose is a source of motivation and, and strength to follow through on things. And sometimes I talk to people about learning and they say, you know, they just don't want to. And so, I think having a purpose actually does engage people in, around something that they want to do. But one book that I would recommend, it's actually an audio book, and it's called Discover Your Dharma. Oh. And it's by Sahara Rose. And she talks about the fact that we all have a purpose. All of us have a purpose to elevate human consciousness in a unique way, and that our purpose is really the truest expression of who we are. 
Well, I definitely am going to check out that last resource when it comes to purpose. Uh, We've been working with our university students, and one of the things that we're examining in our courses is the why behind we're asking them to do an assignment, a paper, a work, to help them understand the purpose. And so perhaps there's some linkages there that that I can uh, take advantage of when we're doing this redesign. So thank you so much, Terry, for joining us. Thank you. This was truly a pleasure for me. Thank you for joining us on the Human Capital Lab podcast, a growth network podcast production in collaboration with Bellevue University. For more about Bellevue University's Human Capital Lab, head to humancapitallab.org. If you were inspired today, pass the link on to a colleague or friend. Stay tuned for our next episode. And until then, keep learning to unlock the long-term potential of human capital.